Welcome to Sport Management Review Insights. I'm your host, Vito Sobral. Sport fans, we know who they are, right? We know what they look like, how they act, and what they wear. But when we think of sport fans, do we think of female fans? From a research perspective, that hasn't always been the case. So in this episode, we're going to discuss female sport fans. And joining us is the perfect guest for such a topic. She's published prolifically in the area of gender and sport, as well as female sport fandom and qualitative research methods, which you can hear on another podcast. She's professor at University of Regina. It's Lorena Haber. Hello. Welcome, Lorena. Thanks so much for, for joining us. Happy to be here. I'm excited. Lorena and co-author Shannon Kerwin recently published Exploring the Experiences of Female Sport Fans, a collaborative self-ethnography. And as often happens, this research reminded me of a story from my sport experience. I was working at a football club and wondering, how can we target female fans? Well, the club was wondering, how can we target female fans? And one of the suggestions came, hey, let's place an ad in a gossip magazine. Well, I was stunned. Luckily, we didn't do that. But Lorena, how does your research help us understand this situation and female sport fans? It helps us to understand in a couple of different ways. One of them is that uh, female sport fans, there's a range of us. There's a range of of what we're interested in in terms of sport, how we act in sport, uh, our motivations and our interest in being involved in sports. So, you know, putting an ad in a gossip magazine may have worked for some female sport fans. Again, that, you know, it's a segment of it, but to assume that female sport fans are this homogenous, one size fits all type of model, um, it doesn't, it doesn't really work. Is that where the the idea came for you to do this research on on female sports fans in this article? Was that we we just kind of lumped everyone in into into this same idea of who they are? Uh, To some degree. I'm trying to think back because it it was a while ago when we first started it. Um, I actually believe the trigger front for it was really this idea that um, it was an article that I saw that said that women weren't really interested in, in, in sports. And, you know, my experience as a sports fan was like, I don't, I don't, I'm not sure that I actually agree with that. But then again, we didn't really know and didn't really understand. There wasn't a, a lot at the time to really show uh, were there women who are, you know, highly identified sport fans? Was there a range of them? What were some of those experiences? So we're really starting from scratch. There wasn't very much when we started. And to get started, what, what did you think of? How do, how do we approach this? What model can we use? What, what was the, the thinking behind that? Well, it was, so it was my co-author was Shannon Kerwin. Uh, we're colleagues uh, in sport management. We were at a conference and I knew that she was, uh, she was one, of, one of my female colleagues that I knew I could talk sports with. Uh, so we started talking about this and kind of, you know, had some different ideas about how we could explore this. And there's, again, there's many ways that you can, uh, but we really were thinking about, well, why not look at our own experiences? If we're part of this population that we know exists, we don't know how many there are of us, but at least with the two of us, we know, hey, we actually do have two people right here who are highly identified. Why not look at our own experiences and have that as a starting point to try and understand um, at least from a certain segment of the population, what those experiences are like. 
that's the, the self-ethnography, obviously, which is yeah. difficult to say because it's got the th and the th later. Uh, but let's let's get on to that in a second. The other aspect I, I want to ask you about is you used hegemonic masculinity as the conceptual framework. Really big, scary words. But can you tell us uh, what that means and why it was important in this case? Yeah, so my simple way of explaining it is it's a dominant form of masculinity. So it's one form. There's many forms of, of masculinity. This is a dominant form that we take for granted. Um, and it's this viewpoint in this case, about fandom about we know uh, what men look like as sport fans and they exist in this way. And this is how they behave. Like they go with their friends and they only, uh, yeah, they watch sports together with men and they can be very loud and boisterous. And uh, you know, they, they love talking sports all the time. So it, it's, it's a viewpoint of just one version of masculine that it tended to dominate how you know, we saw marketing campaigns or we saw what kind of clothing was offered or we saw how people thought or talked about uh, fandom. It was sort of again a dominant viewpoint of this is how men look like when they are sports fans and that was the view taken by most of the research to date yeah so it was like this one dimensional they all look like this and and they all tend to be men they all tend to be of a certain age they all tend to be uh, again experiencing their fandom in the same way and again we were wanting to challenge or critique that to say look actually it's in our own experiences it's not like that we do see fandom being um, performed in many different ways, including from other women is being performed in a different way. You use the, the method that you kind of mentioned before called collective self-ethnography. I hope I got that right. Um, yes. th that's not often seen in uh, sport research. Can you tell us in more detail what that is and if it also means that I can get my blogs from the World Cup published in academic journals? Oh, okay. Well, we'll get to that in a second. Um, well, first of all, it was we used self-ethnography because of recognizing that we were participants in this, that we experienced this, so we could explore our own, ex our own experiences and our own, our own viewpoints. So that's the self part of reflecting on yours. Uh, so going back to your thing about the blogs, it's possible, but you might have to go a bit deeper with that in no, terms of- No, my dreams are over. Easy no, publication, gone. Um, but it's, it's more than uh, people critique it sometimes for being navel gazing and it's just, you know, you're talking about what you did, but you really have to reflect upon it. Um, so then we took it a, a second step further and did the collective part, which is not typical or common, but realizing there was only two of us that we could come together and we each did our own self ethnography and compared to, uh, with each other to see where there was commonalities or differences in our experiences as sport fans. So that, that part is actually unusual. We're starting to see a few more people do it, but usually, yes, a self-ethnography is one individual really exploring their experiences, their feelings, their thoughts on a certain phenomenon. And why was that really useful in, in this case when you haven't got too much to, to work with, I guess, in, in terms of past literature? Yeah, I think that's a that's a great example is that because there wasn't much to draw from. So we weren't, we didn't have things that you talked about models or theories. A lot of that really didn't exist. Again, it's starting to evolve now where we're getting more and we're understanding more of the complexity. So it was important for us to start off with something that we knew and we were familiar with, which was ourselves. Again, we weren't saying that this was reflective of every female sport fan's experiences, but it was ours and we could own that and we could understand that. It was also important because as academics, um, I think we could train ourselves to be very disciplined and to be very uh, 
very critical of our own experiences. Um, so instead of just accepting them and not really uh, thinking deeply about them, we really force ourselves to do that. And sometimes to uncover things that was not always pleasant about our own experiences or how we did fandom. So I guess that's a, another advantage in this aspect is that unlike an interview or, or when you're getting data from someone else, you already apply the academic filter. True. Yeah, absolutely. And and I think the other advantage is you get to spend a lot of time. So an interview often is only perhaps one hour. You really only get a glimpse into someone's experiences for a short period of time. Um, with this, we could reflect over, over our, first of all, our own lifetime, but then we also did a more... Um, in a span of about three or four months of our experiences, really sitting down and thinking about how do we do this? How are we um, behaving as, as female sport fans and really taking our time to think about that. So how did you go about analyzing data when you and your co-author are the source of that data? Yeah, you're right. That is, that is a challenge because sometimes um, you can take for granted, first of all, what you see because it's your own experiences. So you don't question it. It, you can overlook things that, again, perhaps maybe are less pleasant or less positive in your own experiences. But I think that's where it helped having two people. So I could share things with Shannon, she could share things with me, and we could point out perhaps parts of our experiences that maybe, again, we weren't willing to really delve into or really think about or to really explore. So again, we had to be very honest with ourselves, but it also helped to have that check with some other person to highlight maybe some things that were that were happening in our experiences and just noting that you also have a podcast on qualitative research methods so if you want to know more about that uh, please listen to that one but I'm just wondering do you feel more pressure when you're using a method like this for, for rigor and trustworthiness and and to really get it right absolutely I think both of us were rather uh, hesitant and scared to use this. We were scared of the criticism that could happen in part because we were studying ourselves. So that must be so easy to do when it's actually not. I think there's a hesitation as well to, to reveal ourselves and to reveal ourselves actually in a very permanent situation. Like that article still exists. Like anyone can read it and see you know, what my experiences were like as a sport fan, you know, five or six, seven years ago. Um, so yeah, there is pressure. Um, there is pressure also, so as you alluded to, it's qualitative and qualitative faces a number of criticisms. Um, I would say something like this that is unusual, that is self-focused, faces even more criticism than what we might see with typical like case studies or ethnographies. So yeah, we were very, um, <laughs> very aware of that, uh, but still want to take a chance on it and to see, will this be accepted? Will this be uh, something that other people would be interested in? And thankfully it was. So from your very rigorous analysis and trustworthy analysis, what did you find? What were the key aspects from, from your data? Well, uh, a couple of different things one of them is, and again, it's maybe not an unusual uh, finding, is the idea that both Shannon and myself really felt like we always had to prove ourselves as sport fans, um, whether that was real or not to other people, but we definitely 
had this feeling like when we were around uh, other men, particularly men that we didn't know, this sense of having to show and demonstrate our knowledge to really prove ourselves is that we were authentic, that they could trust us, that we like we know what we were talking about. They didn't have to um, exclude us from conversations or they didn't have to talk down to us that we could engage in those things. So I think that one definitely was a very prominent uh, finding of that sense of we want to be part of something, we want to be included, but we really had to work hard to do that. It didn't come easily. I think one of the, the second part that we found uh, that I think was very revealing was this sense of that we weren't always the best in terms of including other women as sport fans. So we were perhaps as judgmental of other sports, other women as sport fans as we thought men were of us. So you know, there was a number of times where I realized that I became very short or very annoyed with other women who didn't perhaps take it as seriously or didn't, you know, didn't have the same knowledge as me. So I, I really realized that I uh, was also part of the problem sometimes in terms of including other women and being very supportive of them as, as sport fans. So when you said you were critical of yourself, you really were. Oh, very much so. <laughs> yeah, it is. It is one of those things where you you kind of look back and go, I can't believe I did that. I'm an academic. I, I should know better. I should, I'm a feminist. Um, but in that time as being a sport fan, I don't, I don't necessarily always think of myself as a feminist or as an academic. I think of myself as a sport fan. And then I realized how much I adopted perhaps some of the other less positive uh, behaviors that other sport fans did to me. Was there any experiences that you had that that really stood out from from writing this Celtic ethnography? Well, I think there was two experiences. One of them was the very real experience, like we talked about before, about analysis and how challenging it really is to analyze yourself, um, warts and all, like all the good and all the bad, and how when you do it on your, we do this all the time to other participants, like we will pull out the things that are perhaps less positive and, oh, that's a great uh, piece of finding, we got to show that, but when you have to do it to yourself, you realize, you realize how personal and how human uh, the research actually is. Um, so in, in, in the methodological part, I think that was very interesting. Again, I'll go back to the point as well, too, about my own experiences of realizing how unsupportive I often was of other female sport fans and just realizing how humbling that was to realize that. Where, where did uh, that happen? Can, can you give us a, sorry, oh, yeah. oh, just a bit yeah, more detail on that? Yeah. I was, no, I was actually at a, at a Toronto Blue Jays game. I had three women that were sitting behind me the, and the whole time they were talking uh, during the game and I was annoyed during the whole entire game. I couldn't, I, I wanted them to be quiet. I didn't appreciate the conversation they were having behind me and I kind of didn't understand why, why they would be at the game. We were actually quite close to the field. Um, so I was like, these are fantastic tickets. Like this is a great experience and you're wasting your time <laughs> talking and socializing and, and gossiping, you know, and it, wasn't until later I realized like you know there's lots of different reasons why people might actually go um so that was that was really that was really difficult to to come to terms with that of my own annoyance about other people around me who weren't acting the same way as me look I, I must say I'm guilty of the same thing with not, not not female fans in particular but but male fans who are very very uh big fans with with big identities and and showing shirts but still getting annoyed with what they say um so i i understand but yeah it definitely makes sense 
from this research, how, how did this advance our understanding uh, of female sport fans? Well, I think it was just, it, it added to sort of the foundational research that we have on female sport fans and just recognizing again that there is a, quite a range of female sport fans from those who are highly identified, like myself, who are going to games because I love the sport and I'm really focused on the game, to again also understanding that there is a range. There are women out there who are just starting to learn the sport and, and, and do need support for knowledge. I think it helped to establish that and to recognize again that we can't just treat women as like this unidimensional, this is all, all female sport fans look like this, act like this, talk like this, wear clothes in a certain way that they're not. Um, and we do have to start to appreciate them is that there's a number of different types of segments of women as female sport fans. I think the other part was just recognizing as well that they are, that they do exist. And I think that was an important part for us was that we weren't just an N of two. There are many of us who are sport fans and we just weren't in the literature. And just for the non-academic audience, N of two just means two people. Sorry, yes. <laughs> the number. <laughs> no, that's fine. I, I get it. I, I just want to explain those things. Now, for, for, especially for the non-academic audience, what does this mean for sport organizations? How should they approach trying to target female fans, which I know is, is a big deal for lots of sport teams around the world? Yeah, I agree. Like, well, part of it is acknowledge that they exist um, acknowledge that they exist in many different forms. So it could be like little girls that actually want to come to, to women who are in their 80s and 90s that still love sports. So it recognize that there's, it, 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 they exist across the lifespan. But I think more importantly is also perhaps to even maybe talk to women who are sport fans, really understand what do they want out of their sport experiences. My assumption is uh, that there are a lot of assumptions made about women as sport fans. Again, what they want, how, how they go, how they attend the games, what they want to wear, things like that. I think some of it is just you need to ask them. And I'm not sure that that's actually really being done. You need to hear from them about what they want as a sport fan. And qualitative methods could be useful in that aspect too. Of course it is. <laughs> Lorena, thanks so much. Uh, that was an absolute pleasure. And uh, I think we learned a lot just from talking. And I'm sure you'll learn even more if you, if you read the article. Thanks so much for having me. And thanks for listening to Sport Management Review Insights. Please head to the Sport Management Review website to check out all the latest research being published, including the article discussed in this episode, Exploring the Experiences of Female Sport Fans a collaborative self-ethnography from Volume 16, Issue 3. That's it for this episode, but keep a lookout. There'll be more dropping in your favorite podcast player soon. Until then, it's bye for now.